You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. I'm going to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We are in the fifth week of a sermon series through Matthew chapters 11 through 13, a series entitled, Are You the One? Are You the One? It's a series all about Jesus because Matthew is a book all about Jesus. His life, his teaching, his miracles, and his ministry, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. This morning we look at Jesus as the one who is greater. The one who is greater. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. This is God's word. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. Let's pray. Father, we need your help as we look at your word and consider what it says and what what it means for us. We, We need grace and we need help. We know we have an enemy that wishes to cloud our minds and cloud our hearts and blind our eyes so we don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we'll need your power, we'll need your spirit to work, to to open our minds and and open our eyes and soften our hearts to, to see and understand and believe and embrace and obey. Oh Lord, I'd ask you to do that this morning for for every person here. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm concerned this morning about three people concerned this morning about three people. The first person 
is the demoralized person who looks at their life spiritually and says, I just don't add up. I'm just not good enough. I'm not going to make it. I'm in trouble. When the final reckoning comes and my resume is examined, ah, I'm in trouble. The second person I'm concerned about is kind of the opposite of the first person. It's the proud person who says, I think I'm doing pretty good. As I look over my own resume, it's pretty impressive. I seem to be on top of my game compared to most of these people around here. I think I'll be okay. I think I'll be able to stand on the merits. I'm doing fine. I'm concerned about that person too. Here's the third person I'm concerned about. The uncertain person who thinks, I'm just not sure what to do with Jesus. I'm interested. I'm impressed. But, but I'm just not sure what to do with him. Concerned with that person this morning too. I think as we look at this passage this morning, we'll see what each of those people need. In verse 38, the scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, we, we want to see a sign from you. We wish to see a sign. Suppose that you're looking for a house. You're looking for a particular house. You leave here this morning, you head out of Davisburg, and you turn on Dixie Highway, head south, get on the expressway, head to the south, get off at Sashabar Road, take a right, head down to maybe, uh, turn right, take a quick left, you're on Drayton Road. You're looking for a house. You drive along and you say, somewhere along here is Jeremy and Rose's house. I think it's on the left, and you press on down the road and down the road, and is it, no, that's, I don't think that's it. No, no, that doesn't look like their cars. A little further, I think they said it was a white house. And, and finally, all of a sudden, you look, and there out by the road is a sign that says, House of Hunt. And you're like, hey, there it is. That has to be it, right? The sign confirms it. Well, that's what signs do, right? That's their purpose. Signs are pointers. They're indicators that, that point to something else. The, no one goes down that road looking for the sign. They go looking for the house and for the people that live in it. Signs are indicators. They confirm the identity of a road, uh, of a location, of a house. And here in this story, the sign is meant to confirm the identity of a person. A sign that will point and indicate, yes, this is the person we are looking for. Jesus has been talking and acting in ways that strongly suggest he could be the Messiah. He could be God's Savior King that, that they've all been waiting for to come and make things right and undo what's wrong and bring salvation, real life to God's people. He's, he's acting and talking in ways that strongly suggest that's the case. The people are openly wondering if it could be true. Back in verse 23, as he performed miracles, they say, could this be? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the one? His disciples have, 
have attached their lives to him in the hope that yes, he is, and they could be together with him as his kingdom comes in. But the religious leaders, a different story. They're saying, Jesus, we want you to show us a sign that it's true. An indicator, a pointer that can't be denied. Something that will make us say, hey, you are the Messiah. We want you to prove yourself to us, Jesus. Show us a sign then. Well, it certainly isn't the first time that God's people have asked him for a sign. It was almost expected in the Old Testament. How do we know if this prophet is true? Well, it often would be attested by signs. Think, for example, of Moses. You remember Moses, that great leader in the Old Testament, and God calls him to go back to Egypt, lead his people out of slavery, and, go, and Moses says, well, I'm going to need, well, the people aren't, they're not going to follow me, and God gives him a sign. Throw your staff down on the ground, and it'll turn into a serpent, and the people will see the power, and they say, yes, he is, in fact, come from God. The ten plagues against Egypt are, in essence, a sign to them. The God of Israel is greater and must be followed and obeyed. Moses asked for and displayed signs. Or think of Gideon. Remember Gideon, God calls him to, to fight against what seems like an invincible army. And Gideon's unsure. He says, well, how about this, God? How about I put a, a fleece, a fleece out tonight, and, and in the morning I want the ground to be wet but the fleece dry from the dew. So sure enough, he wakes up the next morning, the ground's all wet, the fleece is dry. Oh, that's a sign. Gideon says, well, let's do it one more time. Maybe the opposite way. Let the fleece be soaked, but the ground be dry. And God says, okay, we do it again. He gives him a sign. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. Gideon got a sign. Or Elijah. Elijah says, I want these people to see, God, that you're the true God. And he goes to the top of Mount Carmel. You remember, he calls down fire from heaven. He's saying, God, give, give everybody here a sign that you're the true God and not the Baals. And God sends down fire from heaven. It's a sign. All the people see it. They all, you remember, they all fall on their faces and say, Yahweh, he's God. Yahweh, he's God, because a sign. Elijah gets a sign. But when the scribes and Pharisees demand a sign, Jesus doesn't say, fair enough. What's it going to take? What kind of sign do you need? You want a fleece? I've done fleece. You want a fleece? You want fire from heaven? You want a staff turned into a serpent? Jesus doesn't say, what's it going to take? He doesn't say, fine. Jesus is able to perform any sign, any miracle they ask for. There's no sign they could put before him where Jesus is like, ah, I can't do that. He's able to give them any sign. Just in the last section that we saw last week, he's casting demons out of people. But when they ask for a sign, Jesus just says, an evil and adulterous generation, they're the ones looking for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. Why does Jesus respond that way? Moses and Elijah, Gideon, they don't get called evil and adulterous. And see, the Pharisees' request reveals a deep problem in their hearts. A deep problem. They're not hungry to discern the truth about Jesus, and Jesus knows. Uh, back in verse 34, we looked at last week, just in the previous paragraph. He, he calls them a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Because you are evil. They've already made up their minds about Jesus. 
Their aim isn't to discover the truth. Look back at verse 14 of chapter 12. We saw this a couple weeks ago. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They've already made up their minds about Jesus. They already know what they want to do. They're not actually looking for the truth. There's a deep problem down here. And Jesus knows. And says, I'm not going to play your games. There's big problems. They want to destroy Jesus. Chapter 16 clarifies this. Turn over just quickly, just a couple chapters to chapter 16. A very similar situation here. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees, and this time it's the Sadducees with him, come. They came to test him. They asked him, show us a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it's evening... You say it'll be fair weather for the sky's red. And in the morning it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. They come and say, we want a test, a sign from heaven, something big, something grand, something undeniable. And Jesus says... You know that thing about red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor take warning? Like, yeah, yeah, we know that. Jesus says, yeah, you, see, you know that. But, but the signs of the times, if I show you a sign from heaven, you won't be able to understand it. You, you wouldn't be able to understand it even if I gave it to you. Pharisees, we just want to know the truth. Jesus, no, you don't. They don't. Back here in our text in chapter 12, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Why does he call them that? Well, probably, probably he's alluding to the same kind of thing Moses said about the people in his day. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, Deuter Moses says this, the people are about to enter the promised land and Moses already knows they're not going to keep the covenant. They say, we will, we will, we will. And Moses is like, I already know you're not going to do it. And he says of that generation, he says, they've dealt corruptly with God. They're no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Later on, he says of Israel, they, they grew fat and they kicked. They, they grew stout and sleek. And then Israel, verse 15 of Deuteronomy 32, he says, he forsook God who made him, scoffed at the rock of his salvation, he says of Israel, they stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Moses is saying of Israel back in his day, some 1,400 years before Jesus, he's saying, look, you're a crooked and adulterous generation. You go whoring after other gods whenever you can. And Jesus seems to be alluding to that here. He says this, this is an evil and adulterous generation. Instead of being single-mindedly devoted to Yahweh, the true God of Israel, they chase after idols. Jesus is insinuating that the scribes and Pharisees are just like that. They do that too. And I'm sure they would say something like, what are you talking about? We haven't gone after other gods. No idols, no false worship. We are loyal to Yahweh. What are you talking about, Jesus? 
Jesus, you're the one we have a problem with. Actually, it's Jesus that exposes the real problem in their hearts. You know what? Jesus will do that for you and I too. He'll expose in our hearts what's really there, the truth about who we really are and what we're really living for will eventually and inevitably run up against Jesus. And tragically, for many, many people, that won't happen until it's too late. They'll never encounter the good news of Jesus Christ until they stand before him after this life is done and it's too late. They'll appear before him to give account of their life and it'll be too late to do anything about it. That's why we and, and countless other churches like ours spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year to, to send people out to take the good news to every part of the world that they might encounter the good news of Jesus Christ when they might never otherwise hear. But, you know, you and I, in God's kindness and grace, we have heard this gospel message. We've been confronted by the truth about who Jesus, the very Son of God, is. We've been confronted by the truth about what he has done on behalf of sinners. How he lived the righteous life we were supposed to live, but haven't. How he died the brutal death we deserve to die and, and should. He rose again to eternal life so that by faith in him we could do that too. That our sin and rebellion against God might not be the end of the story. That judgment might not be the final verdict for us, but that we might be forgiven and accepted and given eternal life with him forever. It's this good news message, this gospel that confronts every person who hears it. Our lives, our eternal futures hang on our response to that message. And Jesus makes that clear here in the second part of verse 39. He says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You remember Jonah, the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah's a prophet of God in Israel, and God says, I want you to go up to Nineveh, the capital city of your worst enemy, Assyria, and I want you to preach repentance there because they're very wicked and I'm going to destroy them if they don't repent. And Jonah says in so many words, I don't actually want them to repent because I want them to be destroyed. I'm going to, going to do something different. I get a different plan. And he jumps on a boat and heads in the opposite direction. And you know the story. God sends a great storm, and eventually Jonah is thrown overboard and swallowed up by a great fish, and he spends three days and nights in, in the belly of a whale, which basically means dead. You can't survive that. But Jonah does. And by God's command, Jonah... Vom the fish vomits Jonah out on the beach. Jonah then goes up to Nineveh, preaches repentance to them, turn from your sin, turn to God, and they do. Well, all, all Jesus' listeners, they all know the story of Jonah. Jesus says, hey, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Jesus is saying, what, what Jonah did, hey, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish. I will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the Pharisees, they, they can't fully appreciate 
Jesus' story yet. Even his disciples can't yet fully appreciate what's going on here in Jesus' story. But by the time Matthew is writing this gospel and people are first reading this a couple decades later, his readers know exactly what Jesus is talking about. We just have to read on to the end of Matthew's book. Jesus will be crucified and buried for some portion of three days. And then, like Jonah, he'll return to the land of the living. Jesus is saying, that's, that's the only sign you're going to get. No other signs. You've seen the miracles. I perform miracles all over the place. You've seen the healings. You've seen the exorcisms. You've seen all the, mir- the feeding of thousands. You've seen the miracles, but I'm going to give you some big, grandiose sign. I'm going to give you one sign. The Son of Man will be three days and nights in the belly of the earth, and then he'll be back to life. Why does Jesus deal with them like this? Why not give them every evidence they ask for? Why restrict it to just, this is one sign. Doesn't he want them to believe and embrace him? We don't operate normally like this in life. I mean, imagine. Imagine you go to a dealership to buy a new car. You tell the salesman, you're look, I'm looking for a small little sedan that gets great gas mileage. You say, I'm looking for, you know Josh Herwire and his little red Chevy Cobalt? I'm looking for one of the deals. Like, yeah, I know that. He goes, yeah, I'm looking, for, I'm looking for something like that. And so you, you want a very specific set of options, and, and you spend a lot of time reading the stickers, and you've read the reviews, and you're evaluating the cars very carefully, you know, really taking your time. And after a while, the salesman comes up and says, hey, you know, just, just come with me. I have what you need. And he takes you to the back, and there's this big, dually diesel crew cab pickup truck. And you're like, no, 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 no. He goes, this is what you need. And you say, well, I have all this crap. He said, no, no, no. There's only one thing that matters here. It's red. You say, well, um, you're going to need to give me a lot more reasons than that, right? There are actually a lot more issues involved here than the fact that it's red. One sign that this is a good choice isn't going to be enough. I need more. We like more than one option, more than one proof, more than one reason. But consider it a very different example. Suppose you go to the doctor with chest pains, and he sends you on to, to Tom Van Heck, and Tom runs an EKG or a heart cath or whatever, whatever these guys do. And he comes back to you and he says, look, you've got, you've got some serious blockage. This is very serious. You need to have this particular procedure done right away. And you begin to hem and haw. Well, how long is the recovery time? Uh, will there be a scar? What will my copay be? Right. Uh, is there an essential oil that would do the same thing? <laughs> and finally, Tom says, look, look stop, stop, stop. Listen, th- there's only one thing that matters here. If you do this, you're probably going to recover and live a normal life. If you don't, you'll be gone within the month. That's that's all that matters. This is the one thing. This is the one factor you must take into account. If you do what you live, if you don't, you're done. Jesus is saying here, I'm only going to give you one sign. It's the one that matters. If you embrace this and receive this, you'll live. 
If you don't, you're done. One sign. The one sign that matters. This thing is serious. Whether you like my teaching, whether you're impressed by my miracles, whether I meet your expectations, doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is how you respond to a Savior who's been crucified, buried, and risen again. That's what matters. How you respond to him is what makes all the difference. If you can't embrace that sign, Jesus says, no other sign will do. If you can't embrace that sign, no other sign will do. And Jesus won't let him off the hook here. I mean, look on to verse 41. He says, the men of Nineveh, now Nineveh remembers the town that Jonah went to, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The wicked, pagan, Gentile Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. Repented at him, come as a prophet, as it were raised from the dead. Jesus says, but you won't. You won't. At the day of judgment, when you cry out for mercy and it's too late, when you say that you didn't know, you didn't have enough evidence, you needed another sign, the Ninevites will speak up from the corner and say, well, actually, actually, we, we repented with even less evidence. I mean, we had Jonah, it's great, but you had the Son of God. They'll condemn you. And it gets worse. Verse 42, he goes on. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, of course, is in the Old Testament called the queen of Sheba. She comes up from the south, probably in the Arabian Peninsula somewhere. She's heard of Solomon's wisdom and the glory of his kingdom, and she comes up to see it for herself, and she's blown away. She's marveling at his wisdom, marveling at how blessed the people that are that live under his wisdom. And she says, wow, God has really, God's really done something here with you. And Jesus says, at the day of judgment, when you cry out for mercy and it's too late... When you say, well, Jesus' message just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't, it just didn't seem wise enough or smart enough or it just didn't seem like what I should go for. The queen of Sheba will be off in the corner and go, well, actually, wait, you know, um, I repented when I heard the wisdom of Solomon. I said, wow, God is with you. And you've had someone greater than Solomon. God's salvation hangs entirely on one person in one event. That person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That event, his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. We either embrace him and receive that gift by faith or we find ourselves at odds with God forever. We either go to him and find life his way on his terms or we find ourselves on the outside suffering an eternal death. Why would we do anything else but go to him what other way might we suppose we could come to him well that's that's what the second paragraph here that we read is really all about look at verse 43 again when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And it says, well, I'll return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So in some sense, Jesus is saying, look, what's going on in this little story about the demon wandering, looking for a place to rest, that's what's going on with you, scribes and Pharisees and evil generation. That's what's going on in your heart and your life, just like this. What does he mean? Well, much has been written and speculated on about this paragraph. Some have tried to find directions in, well, how do we interact with demons, and how do we make them go, and how do we keep them from coming back? And that really isn't what Jesus is concerned about here. This isn't a primer on demonic activity, but a, but a parable about what's really wrong with the scribes and Pharisees in and, and their evil generation, how they are diametrically different from Jesus. I keep your mark here. Turn quickly over to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is going to really lay out what's wrong with this evil generation. He's going to say lots of things, but I want to focus on just a couple verses. Matthew 23, verse 3. Uh, actually, just start at verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their little finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus says, here's the problem with these scribes and Pharisees. You can listen to what they say, but don't watch what they do, because they don't, they don't practice what they preach. And here's what they're doing all the time. They're laying heavy burdens on people. Laws, rules, restrictions, requirements. He said, they don't keep them themselves. But they'll pile them on you, saying, this is the way you come to God. This is the way you please God. You perform. You work. You keep the law. They pile it on. Now look down to verse 13. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You should be saying, you go out trying to convert people you think to God but you're bringing people to the evil one. Now, now look, they, they don't agree. That's not what they think they're doing. They're saying, look, we're bringing people to the law. We're telling them what they got to do. We're telling them the laws, the rules, and the requirement, what it means to be one of God's people. We got a long list, and we're telling them what it is. Jesus says, no, you're, you're making them a child of hell. That's what you're doing. Something like that is what Jesus is talking about here back in chapter 12. In this, in this little story, a person is seemingly delivered from the evil one. And the person or the house the evil one has left is swept and put in order. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing all the time. We're cleaning this place up. We're getting rid of the bad stuff. 
We're getting rid of the junk. We're getting rid of the people that don't perform. We're going to make sure that everyone is on their toes, doing it right, just right all the time in every single area of life. They're cleaning the house. They're cleaning up the outside. He says it's swept and put in order. There's also one more thing in verse 44. It's swept, put in order, and what else? What does it say? Empty. Empty. You've cleaned up the outside. You've gotten your act together. You're performing, it seems, at a high level. But inside, empty. God's not there. They're not even concerned about it. God's not there. They're just content to keep the rules and try to force everyone else to do it too. That's what the Pharisees are all about. They've cleaned up the outside, but God isn't there, which opens the door for the evil one to return. He says he comes back with seven more, seven, kind of a number of perfection. It's like as bad as it can get. There's seven coming in, returning, and their original place, the original state is worse than when it began. Rules don't work. Moral self-improvement won't get it done. The Pharisees are, whatever their official theology, they are practically legalists. We please God by keeping the law. We please God by performing. God accepts us when we keep the rules. That's what they're all about. And Jesus comes and challenges them on that, and that's why they hate him. Legalism isn't good news. Having to keep all the law to relate to God and be accepted by him, that's not good news. In fact, as this story suggests, it is actually demonic. Because it steers people away from a crucified and risen Savior. It tells us that the answer is something we have to work up and perform and achieve when the reality is the answer is a person we must embrace and accept. There's three big problems with this. They relate to my three concerns I mentioned at the beginning. This kind of legalism, this we're focusing on our outside performance and trusting that that will endear us to God. It, it demoralizes the weak. And who among us hasn't been weak? It demoralizes those who, who struggle to obey and to keep up and to, to do all that they know God wants them to do. It demoralizes the weak. And we've all been weak. We feel after a while, why, why even press on? Why even press on? I've, I've messed up so many times. My record is so checkered. I may well be past the point my record will ever be good enough. The weak are demoralized. The second big problem is that it emboldens the proud. Those are doing well. Those are like, I've, I've got an excellent record. No major offenses. Compared to most of the people I know, I'm doing great. Look at me. I feel good. I'm probably fine with God because I'm not one of the bad ones. I'm one of the good ones. And the proud are emboldened to trust in themselves, 
If I could just keep up this high level of religious performance I've been maintaining, I'm sure God will be pleased. I'll be fine. Once again, not looking for a savior. The third big problem is that it diminishes the gospel of Christ. It diminishes the gospel of Christ. It says, if I clean up my act, that's all that's needed. That's enough. That's what I could do. I've got to work and perform and accomplish and achieve. And if I do that, oh, God will have me. God will have me if I work real hard. And the atoning sacrifice of Christ is diminished. I don't need him. I don't need his demands. I don't need to give myself to him. Look how well I'm doing. You know, there's one sign we need. The one truth we have to grapple with is the gospel itself. Jesus, crucified, three days in the heart of the earth, risen for sinners, dying in our place. You may think, I need another sign. I need God to prove himself. I need him to fix this in my life or change this or show me this. And God says, there's one sign. There's one sign we must grapple with. Jesus crucified and risen again. We must look to him. We must not look to ourselves. We must not look to our performance. When we struggle, we'll be demoralized and discouraged. When we do well, we'll get proud. In both, we diminish the work of Christ in the gospel, thinking that my, my salvation, my future depends on me. Our salvation depends on looking to Christ, trusting in him. You know, we look at the Pharisees here and, and we think, that's terrible, they're just terrible people. Pharisees is just a bad word, right? But the Pharisees were the good guys in their day. When Jesus rails against the Pharisees, the people would go, what? We thought they were the good ones. They were the pious ones. They were the serious ones. We all have a little Pharisee in us. Our spirits rising and falling based on our performance, how well we're doing. Judging ourselves by our performance, judging others by their performance. And what we need to do, what Jesus is calling us to here, is back to the gospel itself, back to Christ and his work on the cross. So we prepare in just a moment to, to move to the Lord's table. It's Interesting, isn't it, that we don't come to the Lord's table and rehearse for ourselves how good our week was. How'd you do this week? How'd you do this week? No. We come to the Lord's table not to focus on ourselves in the first place, but to focus on Christ, to look back what he has done. His death and resurrection are so significant that right before it happened, he, he gave his disciples, his followers, this ceremony. Do this as long as you do it. Do it in remembrance of me until I return. Take the bread. Drink the cup. Remember my body crucified. Remember my blood that shed. Oh, we can't remember it too much. We can't go back to it too strongly, too regularly, too frequently. Let me ask the men to come as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table together. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've trusted in him and put your faith in him, and we invite you to share 
this with us. If you've not, if you're not, I mean, we're, we're glad you're here, but I, I would encourage you, instead of taking this this morning, which won't, won't do you any good, taking this won't make you right with God, it won't absolve you of your sin or give you forgiveness, it's, this is a, a, a memory, a memorial, a celebration for people who've already put their faith in Christ. That's what you should do this morning. Right now, where you sit, you should turn to God. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Him. You know, you need to repent of your sins we also need to repent of our righteousness our self-righteousness our efforts to impress God on our own let me encourage you this morning if that's you to, to, to do that right now as we prepare to take this together